this is Dolio, an original thriller fiction podcast presented in serialized format, a chapter at a time, written by Jared Canton, narrated by Joshua Canton, a Steady Chaos production, 2019. On the last episode of Dolio, Ryder Daniels' failed adoption was explored, including a tragic event of self-harm and an in-depth diagnosis and explanation of his affliction, congenital insensitivity to pain with anadrosis. The episode ended with Ryder's adopted parents relinquishing custody and an introduction to a grieving Gary Daniels, a man that would change Ryder's life forever. Episode 2, A Weakness Inverted The tightly balled fist of 13-year-old Brett Sanders landed squarely with my shoulder. The intense force launched me reeling backwards several strides as my legs staggered to recover. I dropped to a knee on the crushed gravel at the edge of the swing set. You feel that one, freak? Brett chided. These goons couldn't understand that I felt every punch, just differently. There was pressure and force, but no pain, and as the punch withdrew, so did any lingering sensation. I lifted my shirt sleeve to reveal a purple mass boiling beneath the skin. Another bully, another bruise, another excuse to dad. I told you, I can't. I adjusted my ski goggles. They were shatterproof, tinted, black, sleek, and much less embarrassing than the swimming goggles the doctor had first provided to protect my eyes, primarily from my own prying hands. At the time, they had made me feel like a ninja, even if the other kids used them as further justification for mockery and ridicule. How about this? Brett reared his right leg back violently and lurched it forward, impacting my shin with enough force to sweep my leg out from under me. An abrupt landing jarred my head hard to the right, and a sticky substance emerged onto the tips of my fingers as I patted curiously at the side of my head. Within moments, I identified it as blood, and Brett and his three friends did too, turning and fleeing the scene like a group of burglars caught in floodlight. After a few moments writhing in confusion, which was customary absent the traditional pain response of most people, I managed to prop myself upright against the coarse brick wall of Denton Elementary School. Using the mortar lines as a guide for the remaining length of the school wall, I ventured out on my afternoon walk home, anticipating the litany of questions awaiting my arrival. The day's events were not uncommon for someone living with what my dad had termed a special gift. Nobody else, including my teachers, the school nurse, or my doctor, considered CIPA a gift. They had, much to the contrary, always treated me like a porcelain bowl teetering on the edge of a windowsill. It was as if they feared the slightest breeze would knock me over, shattering my brittle bones into a thousand pieces. This popular belief made second grade, when Mrs. Staples had read Humpty Dumpty aloud to the class, particularly uncomfortable. To everyone else, I was the eggshell boy, but to Dad, I was just Ryder. Dad understood my condition as well as anyone, except for maybe Dr. Anderson, who had treated me since I was four. Dad believed I was no more fragile than any other child. He knew, read, and witnessed that I had developed more normally than any other American patient with CIPA on record. By age 10, I had still shown none of the joint deterioration or structural maladies many CIPA patients demonstrated early in life. My studies also posed little problem. I found school, reading, and writing to be a comforting release. Other students, however, were another matter altogether. Most commonly, they were pin-wielding fencers and I was the unlucky pincushion. You can tell a child that someone doesn't feel pain, but children fear pain so deeply, so completely, 
that they don't believe it's possible until they see it for themselves. So they took turns, a punch here, a kick there, a slap, until one by one they started to believe. Then there were those that believed, but simply found repeated proof too tantalizing to pass up. Brett was one of those. I made my final strides over the hill and my house came into view. It was modest compared to what Dad could afford, but he had shared it with his wife Nancy before she died, and it was certainly not the type of house to embarrass me if I had friends over. Then again, that theory would have been easier to test had I developed more friendships. Imagine the nightmare of showing up to school in second grade as the only child wearing swimming goggles. Not a mask, but the type of goggles that turned a boy into a cross between a child and an amphibian, that pinched my nose upward piggishly, scrunched my brow together, and left an awful red indent around my eyes and the sides of my face. For school pictures that year, it looked as if I had put on Zorro's mask and outlined it in a red permanent marker before removing the mask and smiling goofily. The image was no friend maker. The steps to the front door were steeper and more daunting than I had remembered. Dad had taken me in as a foster child when I was young. On more than one occasion, he had explained the two-inch scar across my stomach, how I was adopted once by the Dolio family when I was four, and subsequently, how the family didn't think they could handle the stresses of my condition. After that, I lived in a home with a group of other unhealthy kids, most of whom had conditions far worse than mine. Not long after that, Dad came in looking to foster a boy. He saw me, saw the goggles, and as an avid skier, knew he had a solution. He gave me my first pair of ski goggles, and since then, they had been my eye protection of choice. When God gives you lemons, keep that juice out of your eyes, he had always said with a smile. The glass storm door was littered with sticky fingerprints, mostly mine. I reached for the handle and wrapped my lean fingers around its shine. The handle squirmed slightly in my grip as coagulated blood from my hand lubricated the brass. Turning the knob gently, I pulled, seeking a silent entry, then an even more stealthy escape from the kitchen into the private confines of the first floor bathroom. There, blood could be washed clean, evidence of yet another physical altercation could be destroyed, and the necessity of what my father called, one more time and we're trying something new, could mercifully be avoided. Something old was Dad telling the principal and teachers that although I was pain-free, I was not harm-free, and one more punch could be my last. As melodramatic as it sounded, I now know it was true. While I fancied myself invincible, like the heroes in the comics that littered my room, reality was far bleaker. In the end, I was quite normal. Anything but invincible. I could carry on without hesitation through injury for a time, but serious injury could kill me without a moment's notice. Dad knew this and to this point had taught me that confrontation was not only the last resort, but no resort at all. It was, as he said, a place I simply should not visit. Hey, pal, Dad's words darted through the living room and smacked me squarely in the back of the head as I tried to slink to the bathroom. I spun around deliberately, as if doing so would prevent him from standing right behind me once I had finally finished my rotation. My theory, that slowing movements could stop time, had never worked, and this was no exception. Hey, Dad. I uttered. It took his eyes all of seven seconds to lock onto the matted blood in my hair. What now? He spoke in a manner that begged me to get to the point. It was a question he already knew the answer to. My brain sifted through a rolodex of lies that I had stored up over the years, lies designed to escape the embarrassment of being the school's eggshell boy. I fell on black ice, was a good one, just not on a mild day in October. I fell off my bike, would have worked. But he had taken my bike the last time I used that excuse to cover up a beating. At some point, after sifting through enough unsuccessful lies, time became enemy number one, 
and any contrived excuse will be as transparent as it was delayed. This was especially true for my dad, who seldom bought my lies even when I did manage to deliver them in under five seconds. Brett and his friends, I admitted, deciding my window of plausible dishonesty had passed me by. Where was the teacher? They got me on my way home. Dad sighed and pulled out his wallet. The thick, beaten leather expanded at the seams. He slid a white scrap of paper from one of its more obscure pockets. We've tried everything. I've spoken to your teachers, administrators, Brett's parents. I think it's time we change course. He slid a stool under his backside and picked up the phone receiver. He tugged at the phone anxiously as the cord knotted itself into a restrictive coil. No, Dad, please. It'll just make it worse. Yeah, hi, John. It's Gary. Remember what we talked about a while back? Dad asked, and then went silent. The growl of a deep, slow voice on the other end of the call made its way to my position. Dad replied, Yeah, I think I'll take you up on that offer. My bugged eyes locked on him as he nodded. If I didn't know him better, I would have interpreted the conversation as Dad taking a hit out on Brett and his friends. He had promised a new course of action, but I couldn't anticipate such a deliciously drastic one. When could we start? Dad paused. Great, that'd be perfect. We'll see you then. When he hung up the phone, he swung around on the stool to face me. Again, he sighed. Take your shirt and pants off. Time for a check. If anything, I wasn't bashful about my body anymore. I pulled off my ski goggles, jacket, pants, and shirt, and spun in a circle as he examined for injuries. Dad had called this check ever since he had been my dad. A check was an in-depth physical examination he had learned from several other nurses at the hospital I frequented. The nurses had taken a liking to him, and he had taken a serious interest in my condition, two driving factors in Dad's generating our daily routine. It started with a visual examination for bruises. From there, he'd physically manipulate all of my major joints, examining range of motion, swelling, and diameter, which he'd then chart. It didn't take long for the bubbling bruise on my shoulder to catch his eye. Geesh, he said. It was his feeble attempt at morphing what he was going to say into a more appropriate word. Ice that when we're done. I nodded. He directed his attention to my head wound. Are you dizzy? I shrugged. Vision? Fine, I confirmed. He grabbed a towel off the kitchen counter and ran it under a light stream of water. I could feel intervals of light pressure as he dabbed the towel on my wound. You won't need stitches. Hold this on it while I get a bandage. He returned with a small square gauze pad that he had fastened behind my ear with medical tape. When he finished, he slapped me on the back twice. Good as new. Who was that on the phone? I asked. Friend of mine from a long time ago, he said as he returned from the freezer with a gel ice pack. He tossed it to me and I snagged it one-handed. Why'd you call him? We're going to go see him. Why? Dad retreated to the living room and crashed into his recliner. He had never been a foster parent before taking me in, and although he had been married, he had no previous children. Pictures of his wife dotted the house even though she had died well before Dad had begun fostering me. Although foster homes were intended to be temporary safe havens, there wasn't a huge adoption demand for kids with CIPA. On top of that, few foster families either want or have the ability to shoulder the responsibility. So I'd been with Dad for four years, and probably wasn't going anywhere. There weren't a lot of bidders. He leaned back in his relic of a chair, compromised mostly of fake, cracked leather. Duct tape mended the brakes in the fabric, and every time he adjusted his body, the tape pulling on the pleather screamed as if pained. I was wrong, he said three words I had rarely known him to use in that sequence. I said nothing. I wanted to protect you so badly that I think I may have put you at risk. It was strange to hear him say it, painful to see such a decent man question himself. He had never done wrong by me. The mere suggestion was lunacy. 
He continued, You're as strong and healthy as any other boy your age. Your condition puts you at risk because you don't know your limits. Your body's like a car without a speedometer, and I've always been afraid you'd go too fast and not even know it. Dad wrote grants and press releases. He had a natural way with words. But sometimes, when nervous, he could stumble about rather awkwardly. He cleared his throat and continued, You are going to be confronted in this world, and you can't always just turn away, even if I wish that you could. But, let me finish. I've thought about this a lot, and I'd rather empower and trust you than rely on the kindness of others. This was a total reversal in direction for him. He had always told me to walk away, that fighting back would only make it worse. The man that I called, he can teach you things. What kind of things? I blurted out. I had bugged him to take karate since I had stumbled upon a mislabeled Karate Kid VHS months earlier. I figured if that skinny LaRusso kid could do it while persistently crying and writhing on the mat, that I could certainly do it. His unique version of self-defense, Dad paused, appeared to think hard about his next words. I think it could be a special fit, that he could teach you how to defend yourself when better choices don't present themselves. Do I get to fight people? No. But it's karate. Not exactly. But you'll learn certain methods, disciplines, that kind of stuff. No fighting. While that temporarily muted my excitement, it was still karate. It had to be. And if my life had continued as it had, I'd have the chance to fight soon enough. Go get changed. You're first. He paused. Experience is tonight. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed Dolio, please come back for future episodes arriving at regular intervals. And subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast application.